Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. This podcast segment will be discussing current events in the United States, specifically the recent decisions to say that the First Amendment allows people to not serve LGBT plus customers or provide certain services to them. Biden's student plan, student debt plan is not authorized by Congress and to strike down affirmative action in college admissions. If you would like to hear us talk about our opinions regarding these subject matters, we welcome it. If you need to take a break from this, and want to go to the next segment, that is okay with us as well. Take care of yourselves because things are happening. But just wanted to give you all that heads up before we start the segment. With all that said, hi everyone, my name is Nox Quiros and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Hey everybody, my name is Vari. My pronouns are also she, her, and hers. And so really quick, we're just gonna say there were three cases that were decided within 48 hours of each other. And so we're going to go in the order of the cases and state our opinions and like what we think about them. So the first one we're starting with is 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis. So um, this was the the case where it was basically deemed that freedom of speech, the First Amendment, allowed for discrimination against LGBTQ people seeking specific services. Um, So essentially what the Supreme Court were trying to protect is freedom of speech for companies that sell expressive goods. Um, I say in air quotations because there is no real definition of what expressive goods covers. It could be understood obviously to mean a myriad of things advertising anything creative um any artwork photography you know it it is very non-specific um so my my sort of concern with that is that firstly that that is non-specific and secondly that it really opens the door for people to use their freedom of speech or their freedom of religion to refuse service to other people of other protected classes, you know, or classes that are maybe not yet protected. Yeah, that's my concern as well, especially because the law itself in Colorado is like sexual orientation is just a part of a long list of identities that were protected in that. And so it's the way that this is going to spiral out of this is going to spiral out so much and it's already a terrible thing, you know, just as it is without spiraling. And the fact that this wasn't even a case where this, somebody went and asked for the service, somebody just went, what if this happens? Potentially this can happen to me. I'm going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court because I just really don't want to do this. I really want to be a bigot and I'm going to take this to the Supreme Court. That is an important thing to note, really, is that obviously... Um, 303 at the time that this all started didn't offer wedding websites and more importantly and I think that has come up a lot in the media is that Stuart last name redacted uh, for privacy reasons the person who is supposed to have made this request to 303 for a, a wedding website is married to a woman and has been for 15 years and had no idea that any of this was happening didn't apparently make this request 
And so this whole case has been decided on a on a theoretical, something that never happened. Somebody didn't ask for service that didn't exist. And yet the Supreme Court has been able to say, well, you know, this theoretical person did ask for this service. It's fine for you to say no because of your religious beliefs and your freedom of speech. You can't be made to say something that you don't believe in or you don't agree with. Pretty much. That's that's the whole thing. And I'm just I'm every day I get more and more terrified, which is such a sad thing to say. And it's like kind of feels like like I know there are things that can be done. And if we find any, we'll be like petitions or any things you can do, then by all means, I also want to say I I know that the ideals of feminist book club do not the it's how we're able to make this podcast segment is that the ideals of feminist book club is inclusivity, inclusive, oh God, inclusivity and like standing for everybody, but just it gets just more and more what the hell is going on. And I, there, that can be a whole different episode about the way that everything is working as intended at the cost of everyone else but yeah so you want to go to the next one which i had thoughts because the next one we want to talk about is biden versus nebraska so uh yeah obviously biden versus nebraska for those that are not keeping track of the various uh names of cases is the student loan uh debt relief that was struck down so biden was obviously trying to pass that under the heroes act which was the COVID-19 Relief Act essentially is what ever, uh, allowed everyone to have vaccinations, whether you were, you know, insured or not. Um, it's what allowed for the PPP small business loans that obviously got forgiven, which, you know, is, is good. Uh, we are very pro small business here. Um, but now the Supreme Court have struck that down because of something called uh, the Major Questions Doctrine which they're saying Congress must speak specifically on major or aggressive economic actions of political consequence. What about the consequence of I need to afford college? (laughs) So those who don't know, I am currently in graduate school. This was actually my first um, week back at my uh, residency program because I have like this whole intensive program thing. So I'm very, very upset right now (laughs) um, because I am a student who takes out student loans and I have been for the past seven. This is my seventh year of school. And uh, earlier I gave like the context to Vadi that um, it's 60,000 a year for me to have this program. And like just in general, it can be a whole other podcast episode, honestly, about the cost of education. But it is incredibly frustrating to me that it costs so much since you're honestly, since you're a kid, it costs so much to get to the point where you can apply for college. And then it costs so much to apply for college. And then college itself costs so much. Don't worry, though. There are student loans, but only if you qualify for those certain loans. Don't worry. There are scholarships, but only if you qualify for scholarships. And then, don't worry, we're going to be so nice as to at least you don't have to pay your student loans off while you're still in school. Unless somebody like me decides... After undergrad, I'm going to go and get my master's because you really do need a master's for certain jobs. And so it's like, okay, well, you finished undergrad, so start paying us back. But I'm in grad school. 
that's a different thing. Pay us back for your undergrad now while you're taking loans for another education. And it's like $10,000. My tuition is $60,000. I will gladly take $10,000, but you couldn't even give me a sixth of one year. It's just is so predatory. Obviously, this is all coming as as an education, no pun intended, uh, for me, because I didn't, <laughs> I'm an immigrant. I didn't go to school in this country. I I was lucky enough, turns out, to go to school in the UK where there are like certain caps on tuition and stuff. And I also was lucky enough because of what I studied. Um, I did like an emergency medicine course. And so I was very lucky to get part of my tuition as scholarship, which was given to everyone on my course. You didn't, you know, you didn't apply for it. It wasn't based on a favoritism system. So that was, that was very nice. So I'm just now learning that people are paying 18 year olds quite frequently are taking out student loans for tens of thousands of dollars a year and you know and then if you go past that and and do graduate programs which are obviously more expensive and you know it depends on the course and where you are and all that that you are then taking out loans for a year 60 grand you don't even expect to earn that amount of money a year when you graduate and and can go and do the job that you have studied to do and of course those loans once you graduate start accruing interest so you can't even earn enough in a year to cover a year's college and then more money is getting piled on top of that and now the supreme court has deemed that it is an overstep of the executive branch of government to forgive you ten thousand dollars total and not everyone either you have to apply to be able to do that so not everyone was getting that 10 grand and and it's generations of people people's parents your parents you know not mine because i'm not from here but potentially my mom my parents my yeah, mom's still paying hers still paying off loans you know you they just it's it's incredibly frustrating <laughs> It feels like, and I'm not even, you know, like I said, I don't even have these debts, but it feels metaphorically like a slap in the face when nobody had anything to say when it was small businesses. Nobody had anything to say about the economic impact when the government, in air quotations, because it's all tax money, it's our money. Nobody had anything to say when the government was paying for, rightly, for the vaccinations of people during the pandemic. But now because a certain faction of society have said and you know there's been a lot of public comment on this I had to pay my student loans why should yours get forgiven yeah it's like hey the people that made the vaccines I hope they don't have to pay student loans because maybe the next person who's going to make the next vaccine can't afford to go to school because they're going to be in debt for the rest of their life and it is so and not necessarily I know this is a very fatalistic way of looking at it. And the reason I'm looking at this is someone who grew up with a parent who has been paying student loans pretty much my entire life. But also because and I want to give a content warning really quickly for uh, death and suicide before I say this next sentence. The New York Times wrote an article where they essentially said that one of six ways to get out of your student loan death is debt. Uh, debt is death. Like the New York Times published that because they're like, hey, it doesn't carry on to your to your family when you die. Well, that's very nice. So breaking news, just die and you don't have to pay your student loans back. Cause... That's essentially the takeaway that lots of people got from the article. And it was so 
as someone who had to decide to take out more loans to go to school because I really want to get a master's so I can teach, so I can teach at the school I want to, and so that I can, you know, that's that's a huge accomplishment in my family. I am the first person in my family to have a traditional college route, and I will be the first person, I'm the first person in my family to go to grad school. I am the first I will be the first to graduate. I don't want to be the first to go and not finish. I want to be the first to graduate. And it's a big deal to everyone in my family, you know, not just, you know, like it's a big deal to me. Obviously, I'm doing it because I want to do it. You know, I love my family, but they can't make me go to school <laughs> after. <laughs> it's like, no, they can't make me keep going and paying more money because I'm the one who's going to have to pay this. But it wasn't just when I decided to go to grad school, it wasn't just a big deal to them. It was a big deal to my grandparents and it was a big deal to my parents. It was a big deal to my uncle. It was a big deal to my mom's friends. Like it is a huge source of pride that I am going to grad school. I like to be able to afford things like housing in my life, because that's another thing. Hey, if we don't pay our student loans, it'll screw up our credit, which is used for everything. And I'm so unbelievably upset that this $10,000 just was too much for the government, apparently. But don't worry, I'll be paying 60000 this year. And, you know, like $10,000 and it's a limited pot of money. It's not every single person that ever went to college or every single person that's still paying off student loans at whatever point they're in that, you know, in that chain of events. Like, it is really, it just feels like short-sighted, not investing in the future of of this country and its people just you know we could forgive debts to small businesses because it was an immediate payoff and we can you know same with the vaccines but we can't invest in the future because it feels like this country doesn't look to the future ever not even necessarily the country just the people who run it it's just the people who run it because so many people want this forgiveness program want people to be able to afford college it is such a big deal i know people who my great-grandmother did not have much she lived off of her social security check every month and it wasn't a lot but she every year took out money and put it into a bank account since i was born until the until she died so that i would have something for school she did the same for my older cousin she wanted to do the same for my younger cousin, but there was a reason she couldn't. But like for 16 years, my great grandmother took a little bit of money out of an already little bit amount of money so that I could afford school because she wanted that for me. It's something we prepare for for our entire lives. And it's so frustrating that I will continue to be paying this for God knows how long. So, well, hopefully Congress does something because. You know, as it stands, the Supreme Court have said the executive branch don't have the authority to do this or overstepping. So hopefully Congress sees some sense and invests in the future of this country and, you know, hopefully forgives a little bit more than 10 grand. But I think that might be wishful European thinking, honestly. <laughs> well, we'll also see who can go to school because, hey, you know what else happened? Yes, I'm segueing into the next one. Affirmative action also got overturned oh, or yeah. striked down um, in the, there were two cases, but one of them, the one I'm going to focus, I think we should focus on is Harvard because that's the one that most people are talking about. So affirmative action has gone, but legacy is still standing. It's not right. Is it that? So obviously I, I had a little look into it and, and how the cases were, were brought and, you know, by who and everything. 
and nobody strangely enough has has come after legacy um as a case until until now, now. <laughs> until now so on the positive there are three civil rights groups um which are the chica project uh african community economic development of new england and the greater boston latino network so those are the three civil rights groups that have raised a complaint with the Massachusetts Department of Education, specifically about Harvard Legacy and donor admissions, because that's another one. You can go in on Legacy or you can go in if you've got a lot of money, but, you know, you can't be considered or mentioned at all now your race, which obviously for some people largely prohibits them from getting legacy because obviously um affirmative action you know it was it was a thing before it was reintroduced again in the 1960s but ivy leagues of which harvard is one didn't even admit black students until after world war ii so where's their legacy where's their donor admissions i don't have a legacy like the the schools that my mom and i went to don't do legacies they were they were they were great schools and they gave us our education. If I have kids, my kids don't have a legacy school. They don't. And there was a there was a quote by uh Justice um Justice Brown Jackson where she said, you know, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in real life. And um I saw um apparently in Notre Dame, twenty one percent of freshmen were legacies and four percent were black. And in Harvard, 14% of the entering class were legacies, which was double the percentage of black freshmen at 7%. So for the people who are like, oh, but I'm not getting into this school, why are you focused on a statistically smaller part of the population that's getting into the school instead of, I don't know, the legacy students? It's just, I know I keep saying it's incredibly frustrating and I feel like, you know, I grew up in this country. I should know it so well. I should know and expect these things. And I think part of it was because I really thought there was hope after ICWA was upheld, the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. I was, none of us expected that, honestly. And it was so amazing that it's been upheld and I'm glad it has. I think that gave me false hope for the future. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think I probably came, became a little bit more pessimistic when uh, Dobbs happened and, and which led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That little um, little bit there, basically, quote the, the monumental decision, it's not very common for the Supreme Court to go back on an already decided case in that way. So now that they're weighted as a conservative majority and we know that, you know, Roe v. Wade, affirmative action, certain other cases have been long-term targets for the GOP. And so I'm unhappy but not surprised that this has happened. I am a little bit surprised that it was they used the 14th Amendment, however, to to do this. I feel like at this point I kind of I don't know if it's just because like obviously I do need to teach myself more about like the way the government works and things like that but also I feel like at this point the 14th amendment has been the catch-all <laughs> um for because of due process I feel like it's become the catch-all um especially for cases regarding um anything to do with race equal protection under the laws which so yes yeah. but 
that was kind of our thoughts. I'm so sorry this wasn't very uh, happy of a conversation, but I thought it was something, it was mainly something I needed to talk about to somebody. So thank you, Fari, for being the person <laughs> that gets to deal with all of my suffering throughout this because, oh my God. <laughs> but in the show notes, we're going to link, you know, the resources we both looked at when we were teaching ourselves about this in case you're like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Don't worry, we've got you. We always got, we always have got your backs. Um, and so we're going to leave those in the show notes along with if we find that there's like anything we can do like to, I don't know, petitions to sign marches or something like that. If there's anything we can do, um, we'll try to leave those in the show notes. But at this point, I don't know if there is. And with the sound of my computer buzzing very strangely, I think it's time to wrap up the segment. So again, my name is Knox and thank you so much, Fadi, for joining me. I know this all sounds very fatalistic, y'all, but honestly, I do while I don't have faith in the systems in place, I have faith in community. And so I'm going to cling to that faith in community and use that to get through. I I agree with that assessment. I I have faith in community. It's what keeps me here. You know, I am obviously European. Things are very different out there. So I know that things can be different. I know that things can change. And I just hope that I can help bring that hope to other people and bring that spirit to to other people to affect change. So um yeah, a bit of a bit of a sad one today, but there is hope and you know, there is support and there are other people out here feeling, you know, the the effects and the sadness and, and all those things along with you. So just, you know, we are community. We are here. And yeah, we'll put in uh, the civil rights groups that I mentioned earlier. We'll, we'll note those in the show notes as well. So you can look them up, maybe support them, you know, maybe get support from them if you're affected by uh, some of these things going on. But um, yeah, thank you, Knox, for having this conversation with me for being patient um with my cultural in education <laughs> thank you for letting me rant about this because <laughs> thank you so much for yeah just stay stay with your community y'all let's like all build community and take care of each other while we figure things out and we will see you all very very soon and don't forget to drink your water and wear your sunscreen please please do that please all right Hi, my name is Ashley, a feminist booklet content contributor, and I am joined with Jordy and Lily to talk about The Little Mermaid. I'm going to start with what I liked about the film, and mostly my reason for going to see the film was for Halle Bailey to support her and to make sure that the film had a great box office. But what made me stay was the visuals. I really enjoyed the opening images of the waves. There's a dog in the film, and that'll that'll also keep me glued to the project and, you know, seeing what the dog was doing. His name was Max. I also really liked the casting for Prince Eric. Um, I liked that it wasn't someone who was a star, but someone who we can get to know over the course of their career. And I thought Ursula was great, who was played by Melissa McCarthy. 
I'm Lily Gardner, also a content contributor for Feminist Book Club. And yeah, I agree with a lot of what Ashley just said. I grew up watching the original Little Mermaid, so I was like, I have to see this one and also agree on wanting to just support Halle Bailey, have good box office, all of that. I thought she was amazing in the film, by the way. She was like a great Ariel. Just felt like a like a real relatable person and did a really good job. Singing was beautiful as well. I, yeah, I had some, overall, I found it to be like kind of a bonkers experience, which is actually similar to how I felt about like the new Lion King remake, just because everything's in CGI. And it was like sometimes difficult for my brain to process like animals that look like too real. And then I can't experience them as like, oh, they're acting, but like they're not acting because they're animals. Hi, everybody. I'm Jordy, also a contributor. I grew up watching The Little Mermaid. It was my favorite Disney princess movie. And I think as I got older, I started to see the flaws that were in the film. And so I was really excited about this one coming out because I wanted to see how they were going to go deeper and kind of turn this into a better story than what it once was. And overall, I was really happy with my experience, but I'm also excited to dive into it and hear what you guys had to think about it all. Yeah, I'll go off that for just a second because I agree with what Ashley said on the casting of Eric. I thought I'd, oh, I should back up for a second. When I grew up watching Little Mermaid all the time, I just like, you know, you're at an age where you're not really thinking about how problematic everything is. You're just like, I love Ariel. I love all this. And I am now currently engaged to an Eric. So I feel like that really <laughs> affected my my trajectory here. But uh, yeah, I liked that they, in this version of the movie, there's actually more character development for Eric. Like he has like a song and we have more time with him. And I thought it was cool how they did set up this kind of thing where she really wants to live on land and be like a human. And he really wants, he's really interested in the sea. And I liked that they had that kind of, yeah, they, they both wanted to be in, in the other place which is partly why I still had issues. I, I just don't understand why at the end of this movie, why does she have to become permanently human? <laughs> and why can't Eric grow some fins? Like, I feel like if, if he wants to be in the water and she wants to be on land, but still loves her friends and everything, like, can't we do like six months under the ocean and six months above land? I was really interested to see how they were going to make Ariel and Eric's relationship seem real. Because it's like, obviously, if you can't communicate or really get to understand somebody, like how is love supposed to blossom from there? But I think the film did a really good job with showing Ariel and Eric's like interest and kind of building off of that. And you could really tell, like, even though Ariel couldn't speak, they were still kind of communicating through everything that they were doing. And it honestly felt genuine to me. Yeah, I think the, something that both of you are getting at is even though Ariel's voice was gone, they still found a way to communicate with each other. And it wasn't just what I had trouble with with the animated film was it felt like she, Ariel, wanted to be on land to be with a man as opposed to her having the desire and the curiosity of being on land. And it just so happened that she was able to fall in love with this man and Despite all the barriers that Ursula put on her, they were able to connect with each other. And Ariel wasn't also a human being, but she was still able to connect because she has her friends and her sisters and her father and herself. So she's able to find these connections despite the disparities. I really liked the uh, kiss the girl scene. I think that was my favorite scene in the movie because I felt that energy. I was like, oh, I feel like there's like actually a real connection between these 
And in this version of the story, there's like an added spell where Ariel can't remember that she has three days to kiss this guy. And at first I was kind of like, that's random. Why is that a new thing? But now I like after thinking more about it, I appreciate that because it's like they're trying to kiss each other because they like really like each other. And it's not because she's like, I have to do this or my entire life will be ruined forever. And like all the all the mermaids life will be ruined. And so I appreciated that that kind of took like that stake is still there. So for an audience, you're still like, oh, my gosh, she does have to do this because there's a big stake. But it's not affecting her emotional relationship with this man who she, you know, wants to kiss because she wants to kiss, not because she's on. She, you know, remembers that she has to do it. So I appreciated that. And I thought that was a very lovely romantic scene. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong or off base, but I think I heard something about how in this version during the kiss the girl scene, one of the lyrics that was added was something like, go on and use your words, go on and kiss the girl. And somebody had said that that wasn't in the original film. So I think that that just made it all much more better for me. Words. Yeah, in terms of the additional music in general, and I know they were working with Lin-Manuel Miranda and changing some things, adding some things. What did you all think about the new music? I like the song when she's on land and trying to learn how to walk. And she's just kind of stumbling, but she's, you know, finding her sort of path and her rhythm. I like the additional songs and it felt seamless with the songs that we know and love with the film. I've also heard kind of mixed reviews on this one, but I also really enjoyed Scuttle and Sebastian's little rap song that they had together. I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. And I thought Aquafina playing Scuttle was just the greatest thing. I totally agree. I felt like that was like an unpopular opinion I had that I loved that song. (laughs) I went to see that movie with people who hated that part and they were like, that song was so stupid. Like they're trying too hard to like add like rap and whatever. It's like, but why not? And it was fun. And like both of the people voicing these characters like are rappers. That's kind of like hokey and cheesy, but this whole movie is like the characters are. We have, you know, a crab and a seagull like hanging out together. Why not just really lean into that? I thought that was really fun. That scene made me laugh a lot. And I was just like, oh, these characters are very endearing. And I I loved Aquafina and David Diggs in both of those roles. So it comes to the part of the conversation where we talk about the things more that we didn't like about the film. I will say... Javier Bardem as King Triton did not work for me. I feel like every scene he was in, I just felt too much similar to just using Lion King as an example because they remade that too with kind of more lifelike and you know, very lifelike in the CGI and everything, which like looks beautiful, but is sort of like strange for my brain to compute at the same time. And some of this movie, I was just having that struggle where I was like, I'm watching humans underwater, but like they're talking and they're breathing and like this isn't. Right. By the end of the movie, I got a little more like I am now accepting that this is like what's happening. But for some reason, it was hard for me to see like the characters at first. I was kind of like seeing actors playing mermaids. And for Javier Bardem, I just sort of felt like that about him the whole time. Like I couldn't take my mind off like this is Javier Bardem in like a ridiculous costume. <laughs> and like the scene at near the end when she and Eric are, you know, in their boat to leave and then they just turn around and he's like standing in the water. Like half the theater that I was in burst out laughing. And that was supposed to be like a sentimental moment of like, oh, look, her dad came like above the water. That's a really big deal that he did that. And 
It's supposed to be this nice father-daughter moment where he, you know, wishes them well and everything. And I just was like, why is Javier Bardem standing in the water in this outfit? So I, I struggled with that a little bit. I did think Melissa McCarthy was like amazing as Ursula. I thought she was like a perfect Ursula. So I think my overall kind of, I don't know, things that were maybe not my favorite were just, I truly don't understand why that the ending can't be a little changed. Like I'd love for Eric to grow some fins. I would just love to like kind of play with that more and like push that more. And I do think this movie does a better job expressing like she really wants to be human, like she has wanted this, but it's hard to buy like so you can never go back home like it seems like the magic they're using isn't that hard i'm curious for there to be maybe i need like little mermaid 3 in like another 10 years or something where we just like really really change the the outcome of this of this story but maybe that's less interesting so i don't know for me this watching the film i think i kind of had my child lenses on and i kind of went back to that place and I just remember being surprised by how much I was still enjoying it and still liking it. And I was excited to see all the new things that they included. Now, I say this because I am not a movie person. Like, it takes so much for me to sit down for that amount of time and watch a film. I think the only critique that I could have is, like, it ran just a little bit long for me. But, like, if to me, if that's, like, the only thing I can critique, then... Like, obviously, it was a good film in my mind. I think everyone did a great job in their roles, like, playing the characters. And I thought it was really cute how they brought the woman who played the original Ariel in for, like, a scene. I thought that was cute. And I liked the little storylines that they added into the movie, like, with Eric and Ariel's fascination of finding things. Like, like you got to see Eric's whole room of finding trinkets and history and stuff like that and they got to explore things together and I thought that was really fun yeah I also feel like every film can be 15 minutes shorter and I'm more inclined to go see a film that's under two hours and this film is under two and a half hours but yeah I I agree my biggest critique is I wish there was more of the seven sisters I didn't feel like there was enough of them, and especially with Simone Ashley being from season two of Bridgerton. I don't know if she shot this before Bridgerton, but I think with her star power, it would have added another element, and then we could have had more intrigue with the Seven Sisters. Someone said that could be a Disney Plus series, and you know, maybe just like a, a nice mini series more about the sisters. And at one point, like. When Ursula was really getting into her power, I didn't tell you, I blinked. She was a giant. I'm like, what, ha- like what, ha- what vitamins did she take to make herself this big? And it was just, it was a little startling to me. And I would talk to the friend who has a, who has a child and she had to take her out because it was so, because it was so jarring, that image. So I think, you know, you're you're getting into this being a film for children. There were some images that were a little bit startling. Yeah, there was a theater full of like half, you know, it was mostly like families with children. So there's a lot of kids in the theater and people were leaving at that part. There were kids that were like scared. And I and I think that was one of the places in, in what I was talking about, trying to compute like CGI world. I was like, oh, this scene is really like successful as a cartoon. 
but it looks really weird. <laughs> it's like a re there's a real person growing to this proportion in the ocean. And it's like a terrifying scene. There's just lots of scary things happening. When the, what is it, Ursula's like her, her eels or the, I forgot what kind of animal they are. I, I'm pretty sure they're eels. Yeah. So like in this version, they're really like full on electrocuting people. And I was like, this is actually very terrifying. I enjoyed watching it. But a lot of that is because I grew up with the original. So it was fun to see it remade and to have like real actors in it and to just have that, you know, more character development and, and things like that. And there were so many parts of the movie where they were exactly matching the shots of the original. And that was just like a really fun thing of like, oh, I remember that literal like picture on the screen and they have recreated it. And that is fun. But I was wondering, like, I'd be curious to know what this movie is like if you're seven years old. And you're watching this story for the first time. Like, does any of this even make sense? Is Ursula just really terrifying for no reason? And I also agree with Ashley's comment. This wasn't even something I had thought of until you brought it up. But yeah, the seven sisters, it was really cool to see them on screen and be like, ah, oh, there's like, you know, diversity. And they're from different, presumably different like regions of the world and kind of that all of that. And I thought that would have been a cool opportunity to just do more with that. I think that was sort of a moment where it was like, look, we know about diversity. But then like there was no like engagement with it. And I think that would have been something really cool to have not only for like authentic diversity representation and interactions, but also for Ariel to have like she had all these ladies in her life, like she had a, a true sisterhood. And it would have been fun to have that be more of like a support system for her. So I think I would advocate for like less of the scary action stuff with Ursula and like a little more on the family relationships. Yeah, kind of to echo the Ursula topic. One thing that was different about this remake was you kind of saw Ursula at different parts of the movie. Like when Ariel was in her cave where she has all of her trinkets, Ursula kind of comes up in a bubble and you see her more often than I thought that was like kind of cool how they did that. And I did also think that Ursula's cave when Ariel's going through and you have the like little things coming up and grabbing her like that part scared me. So that that is another area where I felt like that whole scene was darker where Ariel's giving up her voice and how Ursula got her voice I felt like was much darker than the original film. Yeah, Disney doesn't do, hasn't done too well with its villains as of late, but this film, it, it, Ursula is terrifying. It's like, honey, we need to kiss because I, I am not going back to that cave. I am not going to work for this woman. So we got to make it do what it do because I'm not going back. I'll say the actress who played Veronica, she did such an amazing job. In that role, I thought it was great. I was obsessed with her for like the 10 minutes that we saw her. I thought it, it was done so well. From what I can remember watching the original Little Mermaid and then the sequel to it, I was hoping that it would be open to kind of interpretation and maybe we could potentially be getting a sequel where we kind of see both of the worlds coming back together. And just to echo what we've said about the sisters, I think it would be an added bonus if we could get more about them and maybe see their stories and just getting all of that. Yeah, even this exists in the original one, but they just developed more this idea that like there's the ocean world and there's the land world and they are separate and like they believe bad things about each other. And it was a little more of the like 
Romeo and Juliet, where like they both belong to the wrong side and they want to, you know, get together. And why can't everyone just understand their love? Because of that, in some ways, it almost feels like this is like an origin story for something else where like because now these kingdoms are like brought together so what does that mean like I, I think I would like to see a sequel to this to be like what happens when they go out in the world together and they have these different perspectives on things and in this version also Eric is adopted and I think there's like probably a lot to play with there and explore there as they're both like journeying together and finding out other parts of the world because they do live in like I don't think either of them have ever left the area around this island <laughs> and I think that could be I feel like there is a lot of potential for like further storytelling here that I would totally go to a theater to see so and I'll get over my my CGI processing problems yeah when I saw that there was a black queen in this story I, I that really made me happy and to see the actress and also the costumes the costumes were beautiful as well. Her regal regalia, if you will, I thought was beautiful. And to not, to see representation, but to not see it as forced as Disney has kind of tried to make it to be, as also Lily had pointed out, but also to see royalty and to see the island. And it's not just these two people trying to be together. It's, it's a nice, what looks like origin story. And with that said, Jordy and Lily, thank you for joining me to talk about The Little Mermaid. This was a treat. Yes, I am always down to talk about mermaids. Same here. Anything Disney, we can chat. And thank y'all for listening. Feminist Book Club, one of our favorite genres of nonfiction is learning the stories of the women behind famous or powerful men. So I am thrilled to share a brand new book with you. Parachute Women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and the Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. These four women worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape and curate the image of the Rolling Stones. This book is a beautiful, comprehensive group portrait of four women who were marginalized by the male-dominated rock world of the late 60s and early 70s, finally giving the women the credit they deserve for the impact on one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Even if you're not a Rolling Stones fan, you'll be blown away by the audacity of these women, and you'll love the rock and roll stories Elizabeth Winder shares in these pages. Perfect for readers of Girls Like Us, Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder is out now from Hachette Books. Thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. Hello, Feminist Book Club listeners. My name is Alana Amor Coleman, and my pronouns are she, her, or she, they. And I'm joined by Nina Haynes to talk about Bookstagram, book influencers, and the sapphic community on said book internet world. I want to talk about this because I am gay. And if you guys know me from Black Sacks, I talk a lot about books, celebrating narratives of people of color and LGBTQ plus community. And this is somebody that I've been admiring from afar for a while. Hello, my name is Nina Haynes, pronouns she, her. I am a book talker, book influencer, overall chronically online bisexual, and I'm the founder of the Sapphic Book Club, Saflit. 
which now has over 7,200 members from over 60 countries. We've been around for two years and yeah, really excited to chat with y'all. <laughs> kind of a blast. So how did that come to be? Like, how did this community start and how did it get to this large number in such a short period of time? Yeah, so I was at an old job. I was fucking miserable. I was in peak pandemic where I was really torn away from my IRL queer community that validated me and made me feel myself and celebrated my identity as a bisexual woman. And I was craving queer community when I couldn't have it in, you know, my old traditional way. So a friend of mine suggested that I start talking about gay books on TikTok because book talk was really starting to come about, become this big thing. And I started posting and within a few weeks really found my niche of queer books that, you know, weren't necessarily the young adult queer books that a lot of the app was talking about. Like we love those. And I wish I had those when I was teenager, but I wanted to talk about Audre Lorde and Eileen Miles and Tori Peters and, you know, this really wonderful genre of queer contemporary fiction that was beginning to be celebrated while also honoring, you know, the feminist lesbian texts that were really important to my gender and sexuality studies major that I did in college. And so I started posting a lot about those books and someone commented on one of, you know, one of those videos that went viral saying, can we start a book club? And when I fixate on something, it's all I can think about. <laughs> and three hours later, we had our home on Geneva, which is the app that we use to host our book club. It's like Discord for hot people and without incels which we love. We started reading One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which had just come out. It was June 2021. And in the first day, we got 50 members. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this many people want to talk about books with me. This is so cool. But through the support of the Geneva app and, you know, TikTok videos being pushed out in the algorithm, we've grown uh, over the course of two years to over 7,200 members, which is wild, but it's so, it's so cuckoo to, you know, have this really wholesome, lovely corner of the internet where people can um, to ask for and offer support, celebrate their identities, chat about life, chat about yellow jackets, chat about queer ultimatum, chat about whatever gay books that they're reading. For the past few years, we've read two books a month, one fiction, one nonfiction. And starting in August, we're going to go back down to one book a month because, Lord, my schedule cannot take it. <laughs> it's time for a nice little break. But yeah, I I loved it. Safflet's like absolutely changed my life. And you guys are also on Instagram. We just recently announced your two book picks for July. Yeah, so we are reading Old Enough by Haley Jacobson and Lesbian Love Story by Amelia Posanza. And I have secured interviews with both of those authors. Oh, Alana's holding up Old Enough. I love it. I just got a tattoo of the title Old Enough at Haley's book launch party. There was like a flash sheet there. And I was like, you know what? 
I love this book. I love Haley. And it's a book that I wish I had when I was 17. So yeah, I got I have over 30 tattoos. So what's <laughs> one more of a of a book title that I that I absolutely adored? Do you find it difficult to find literature? I usually go to the classes classics because I think they're the ones that people sort of forget are there with this sort of new burst of literature. But I love Andre Lord and Alice Walker's sort of a controversial conversation. I'm sort of blanking on other authors right now, but also they're not new. But we sort of forget that with the way that publishing is sort of shifted, especially post-2020. So when you're finding your your books, do you feel like it's it's still somewhat difficult to find those titles? Or do you think with a new burst of publications and a, a, a desire to have that representation really carrying the industry at this point, do you find that it's easier? Well, that's a great question. So we really try and keep a good balance between classics and new pubs because a lot of our readers rely on the library system to get their books and you know with the excitement around new pubs there's not as many copies available there's you know really long wait lists I've never had any trouble finding books to include in our monthly book polls for people to to read and you know with books like old enough by Haley Jacobson like I'm like oh we're reading this with (laughs) I Kiss Share Wheeler when that came out by Casey McQuiston I was like oh we're reading this so there are moments where I'm like you know, choosing what we read, but majority of the books that we read have been voted on by our community. And I am constantly collecting suggestions from our Geneva conversations, whether it's me asking or me just browsing what people are talking about. I have a running list of hundreds of books that our community has suggested that we read together. And maybe 30% of them are published post 2020. There are really wonderful books that have been around like Ruby Fruit Jungle, Stone Butch Blues, Chelsea Girls, you know, The Price of Salt, Oranges Are the Only Fruit. There are these really wonderful books that are, you know, staples in the sapphic literary canon that I think are important to resurface and bring back up. And I love, you know, creating a list of books and sharing information about them with the community before we vote on them. So people have an informed decision of what they want to vote for. And the comments that I get are often like, oh, my gosh, I've never heard of these. And I'm so excited. I'm adding all of these to our TBR. So it's really great to see how, you know, this circling of sapphic literature and information brings you know these classics into into the spotlight but yeah i i never have any trouble i'm on bookshop.org almost every single day looking through new releases looking through bestsellers like going deep deep into (laughs) the books that they offer in the lgbtq section so i'm always finding stuff for to suggest can you name three of your favorite sapphic reads? Oh, I get this question a lot and it changes every single time. I would have to say The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. I think that's one that's a book that I recommend everyone to read. It's it's so prosaic and gorgeous and emotional and like thought-provoking and yeah, Detransition Baby would be number two. Honestly, I adore, adore that book. And Tori Peters is 
one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to and had the honor of interviewing. If you watch that interview on our YouTube, you can see me slowly starting to fall in love with her in the process of the interview. It's amazing. And I've given so much love to Old Enough by Haley Jacobson. So I want to say Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. That is one of those books that when I read it, I was just like I had to sit with it for like a day to really process all of it's it's so poetic that that book it's it's written in such a unique style and the intergenerational storyline makes me wish that I had queer elders that I had relationships with and unfortunately there are so many reasons why we don't have so many queer elders to look up to and yeah Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon so you know, a lot is like fist bumping. Yeah, that book is, oh my God, it's magical, literally. And Samantha Shannon is just the nicest human to exist. And I, I read, I steamrolled through that 900 page tome. It's, it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous story. But there's so many. I have been a bookworm my entire life. Like I remember reading the Warrior Cat series. Throwback. If you read the Warrior Cat series, you're gay now. I read that in middle school and I had this stack of 10 books and I would read them one by one on the floor of my bedroom and just put them in a new pile because I I would sit there all day because I had no friends and I, you know, my friends were fake cats. But yeah, I, you know, kind of lost my ability to read for pleasure when I was in academia and really studying for gender and sexuality, my gender and sexuality studies degree. And writing my thesis kind of took all the fun out of reading for me for four years. And, you know, I didn't have time. But once I graduated and kind of processed the the post-grad trauma, I got back into reading. And now I'm back to like 50 to 100 books a year, depending on how much time on the beach I get. So you okay what so you mentioned that you engage with the queer community differently before the pandemic. What, if you're comfortable sharing, what was that like prior and why was books in particular the touch point for connecting with that community um, once we all sort of shut down? Yeah, I came out publicly on the internet during the pandemic. So before the pandemic kind of shut everything down, my connection to queer community was really through interacting with my IRL queer community that saw me, loved me, accepted me, even though I was closeted and validated me as I needed it. It was a lot of, you know, bars and going out and, you know, classic young gay experience. But now that the pandemic hit, I'm really grandma. Like I go to bed at 930. I am tired. I am fucking exhausted. I was an introvert before, but Post-pandemic, I am so much more introverted, happily, may I add. And for me, books was just like the great leveler. It was it was such an easy way to strike up a conversation online. It was, you know, it, it was a way to connect with stories and feel seen and heard and understood and represented. It's an endless thing to talk about because you can recommend book after book after book and talk about shared experiences and what you related to. It's a perfect jumpstart to connecting with someone that you don't know. 
it centers the Sapphic community. Absolutely. Like books is how we started. Books is what connects us. But in the Sapphic Geneva, we talk about so much more. We sometimes I'll, you know, notify our community like at room. Can everyone share something from the past week that they're proud of? And the responses that we get to that prompt are just so incredible. People will be like, I'm proud of myself for getting out of bed today. I'm proud of myself for coming out to my parents. I'm proud of myself for getting a second job interview. And then we can celebrate, you know, our achievements and our and our wins outside of reading and be able to connect with one another outside of, you know, our shared love of literature. So yeah, the the books for me as a, you know, forever reader and a severe introvert was a way for me to break through social awkwardness and talk about the causes and the representation that I really cared about. In the sense that like a lot of the book talks that you host are queer related and you're hearing these queer authors or queer elders in some cases who are putting their experiences into these books ideally to share that with readers you feel like that sort of extends that way when you're just in conversation with them yeah like for example last night I interviewed Haley Jacobson who who was a friend but you know I I discovered so much more about her through reading her book and it opened up conversations for us to talk about experiences that we've had and you know personal anecdotes that we we just learned so much about each other and it it allowed us to be more vulnerable because she was vulnerable in her book and she was vulnerable in her interview and so yeah i think when i share how i personally connected with an author's book where i say thank you for writing this scene this made me feel x or this character i resonated so deeply with because of y there have been three, four authors that I've talked to that I was able to share like, hey, I was raised very, very Christian and your book touches on religious trauma as a queer person. And me having gone to church three times a week and getting a purity necklace when I was 16, this like meant so much to me that you wrote this. And they're like, oh my God, like, because like just sharing that one little thing, it's like, oh, you already you know, you can see how that has affected me, even though I don't have to tell you the whole story. Being able to connect personally to their books and sharing that and like having that bit of vulnerability with myself has allowed our interviews to become more personal. And yeah, I I like to level with them. I like to be like, I I don't want this to be a regular degular interview. I want this to be, you know, I, I am a sapphic book club leader and I want you to see that I'm your I'm your target reader. You wrote this for me and you wrote this for everyone on this Zoom call. So like, let's let's really talk about it. How many of you know about the two services on Sunday, the Wednesday Bible study and the volunteering throughout the week? Let's talk about the two week mission trip that I took to a monastery in the south of France. Like, what the fuck? I I was an acolyte, which is the gender neutral term for altar boy. I wore the robes. I carried the candle down that aisle three times a week, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. Like, the Lord, youth group is a fucking cult. How many of you know about Awanas? That's a mic drop. You know about Awanas? No. All right. It's like Boy Scouts for like church kids. You get patches, you get awards, you like do skill stuff and you like 
win little points and it's sort of like a competition. It comes with a little handbook. And a lot oh, of them God. are like memorizing like Bible verses. See, this and- is like this is like young life to me. Young life is like this fucking evangelical, like nationwide cult that has like individual state chapters that infiltrate school systems. And scary. That's I'm gonna say research it, research it. But yeah, uh, church as a queer person definitely delayed my coming out. Okay. From my religious trauma. Okay. So how, so you're an influencer, which is important. Let's wrap back around. All this is included, but just for the touchstone of these following questions. Did you set off, start talking about the queer books to become an influencer? Or oh, did it just no. did it just happen? No, no, no. So my nine to five, I'm an influencer marketing manager for a stationary company. So my job is to pay people on the internet to post about our products. So I, many of my friends are influencers. I've worked with thousands of influencers over the years. I've been in this industry for six years now. And I never, ever, ever wanted to be an influencer. It was... But it's something that I, because of my nine to five skill set, I know how to do. I know how to talk to brands. I know how to read a contract. I know how to negotiate. I know how to shoot content. I know what brands are looking for. It's given, I mean, being on both sides of the industry has helped me with both jobs. But I'm very, very selective with the partnerships that I do take. And I, I didn't used to be as much, but I am now like, I delete 90% of the inbound emails that I get because I don't have time for it. Also, like, it took a lot of the joy out of the posting for me. I think something that creative people face a lot is whenever they show a creative pursuit that they're doing, people in their life will be like, well, how can you make money from that? I did, like, this has happened to me with Saflit. Like, people will always ask me, well, how do you make money from that? Because you're dedicating so much time to this. You're really good at it. You should be able to make money from this. And for me, you know, definitely deserve compensation for things. But when you go in, when, for me, when I go into, you know, something with the intention of making money out of it, it truly just like takes all the joy out of it for me. And I'm really lucky that I have a stable nine to five that I don't need to rely fully on my influencer income. But yeah, I that's a long explanation to say, no, I did not go in with the intention of making money from posting on TikTok. I truly I mean, there's barely any money in publishing anyways. So like they they're not going to pay me that much anyways. (laughs) When did you sort of realize that 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 you had legitimately become an influencer was it follower count or was it like recognition or a girl came up to me at a party I was at and was like I follow you on TikTok and there was a this was like last year I was like freaking out I was like but it was like through friends of friends and she was like a Brooklyn girl and I was like oh of course like yeah you do know me but I was out to dinner and the waitress at the this restaurant that my boyfriend and I go to like two three times a month recognized me and she was like I know you from the internet and it it's just that that's the moment where I'm like oh god I'm being perceived by people that don't know me through friends of friends or know of me through 
mutuals. Like it's when a complete stranger goes up to you and is like, are you Nina Haynes? And I'm like, nope, I'm not. Not today. Not right now. But if you are listening to this and you do see me in public, if I am alone, you can come up to me. But if I'm if I'm with someone else, I would respectfully ask for you to not. I've, it's scary. I'm so introverted. Like, I don't know how to talk to people. I've had, and I have a significantly less follower account, follower account than you, but I've had people come into my job and recognize me like four or five times. And that's been, that's been interesting and i've just when they've come up to me i've just been like hey this is great i've had people ask for pictures and things like that and i'm just like can you just not let the rest of the internet know that this is where i work respectfully it's definitely weird and it's it's i think because bookstagram is such a smaller or like book talk or whatever it's such a smaller sort of like influencer space in a lot of under like industries it's a lot easier to be recognized for a lot less of a, like a follower account. So that's uh-huh. been super fun to navigate. <laughs> How do you balance everything that you do in regards to like being sort of like a book influencer with like TikTok and you're active on Instagram? You're also doing a lot of book moderation. You also run this gigantic book club. I feel like a chicken with my head cut off every fucking day. Like I, I... I bullet journal and and I have and I use Notion and I write lots of to-do lists and I try and keep as organized as possible. And my G like if people want to see me, they need to GCal invite me to everything because if it if it's not on GCal, it doesn't exist. I try and keep organized as much as possible, but things go to the wayside. Like I have to make sacrifices in my personal life. I had you know, book club meetings one weekend and I couldn't visit like my family and like see my cousin that I haven't seen in like two years. And it was devastating. But, you know, you have you have to make sacrifices. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why Southlet is going down to one book a month, because I can't anymore. For a long time, I really tried to be everything to everyone. I tried to offer as much as I could, but setting boundaries and recognizing when I'm stretched too thin is a skill that I am still learning and, you know, trying to put into practice as much as possible. I'm also very blessed that the company that I work for is on UK time. So I get up early, do most of my work, and then by one o'clock, I don't have any meetings. So my afternoons are are pretty free, which is which is really nice. BA. Yeah, it's French for paper. Great. Okay, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Papier is a online stationery company that allows you to personalize your notebooks with whatever you want to say on them. And we offer wellness journals, academic planners, gratitude journals, lined notebooks, dotted notebooks, plain notebooks, daily planners, the works. They're a wonderful company to work for. It's my favorite job I've ever had. And yeah, it's just really cute shit. And I, I've been journaling since I was a child. I write down everything. So I like black out when I go into a stationery store. I love notebooks. I love paper products. So it's, it's a perfect fit. And if you want to get any stationery, papier.com. 
They also have reading journals, everybody. Oh my God. Yeah, I totally forgot. They have reading journals. They're adorable. They're so cute. It was like the first project I got when I started. They were like, hey, reach out to all of your book talk friends. And I was like, Alana, reading journal? Question mark. I love it. It's so cute. It has a little guy on it. I think I named him Fred or something. I love the nose in the book design. Yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Nina.Haynes or on TikTok at Nina.Haynes and join Safflet. We would love to have you and welcome you with open arms. You can follow us on Instagram at Safflet. That's S-A-P-P-H-L-I-T. But yeah, thank you for inviting me. I had so much fun chatting with you. Oh, thanks for joining us. Everything, all the books we discussed will be linked in the notes as well as all the places you can follow Nina and Safflet as well as me. And thank you so much for listening. And thanks. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a thing.